Welcome back to Becoming Your Best Version. I am your host, Maria Leonard Olson. I am a civil litigation attorney in Washington, D.C. I'm also a mentor to women in recovery, a TEDx speaker, actually, listeners, if you haven't already, please go to my website and click on the button that says TEDx Talk. My TEDx Talk is a 14-minute summary of my book. My book is called, my last book, which is called 50 After 50, Reframing the Next Chapter of Your Life, which has actually, to my delight, helped thousands of women and men up-level their lives and get unstuck. The TEDx talk is 14 minutes of a summary of that book, and the TEDx talk, which I gave at City University of New York, is called Turning Life's Challenges into a Force for Good. I believe it, too, has the capacity to help other people who may be suffering or trying to overcome challenges and traumas. So give it a like. That moves it up in the visibility algorithm and may help me get my next TEDx talk, which will be about DNA discoveries. As many of you know, I discovered at age 53 that I'm the product of a one-night stand and Catholic Maria, who was raised Catholic, went to Catholic schools my entire life until law school, is actually the only Filipino Jew you will likely ever meet in your lifetime. I'm hoping to pitch it as a sitcom to some streaming uh, outlet. So wish me luck, listeners. I started this podcast. This is the fourth season because my work in the arena of women in midlife and self-care and wellness brought me into contact with amazing, amazing women whose voices I want to highlight and bring to you because you've told me you love listening to the women that I have found in my travels, both online and in person. So today I have a really special guest. Her name is Erica Ginsberg. She has drawn on her own creativity in a variety of different roles. She is a writer, a documentary filmmaker, a story consultant, and a project manager. She is the author of this amazing book that you must get, available everywhere shortly, called Creative Resilience. She also has a blog called Erica, at, you can find it at ericaginsberg.com slash blog, which helps artists reframe the challenges of the creative process and creative life. The book features experiences of artists from a variety of disciplines, ages, and backgrounds. The topics include motivation, self-confidence, blocks, rejection, and balancing creative pursuits with the rest of life. Many of you out there have told me that you want to write books. This is a book that you should read and put on your bookshelf and consult. Because how many of us have talked about writer's block, imposter syndrome, all the things that we tell ourselves to keep us from doing what our hearts desire. She also co-founded the documentary film organization called Docs in Progress. You can learn more about that at docsinprogress.org. She served as its founding executive director for more than a decade. She hosts the D Word. She co-hosts the D Word 
which is a peer-to-peer -peer global community for documentary professionals. I've always thought about maybe doing a documentary. I don't know if at age 60 I'll do that, but my daughter has, and she actually was nominated for an Emmy, and it made me really, really proud. In any event, getting back to my guest. In addition to working in the arts, Erica organizes professional development study tours to the United States for mid-career professionals from around the world as a senior program officer with Meridian International Center, which is in Washington, DC. It's a stunning property. I encourage all of you to walk in its gardens. I actually had my wedding reception there and it's a magical place that means a lot to me. Erica has a BA in International Affairs and a Master's in Film and Video. She finds joy in travel, painting, collage, reading, nature hikes, and spending time with friends, family, and her dog, Lulu. So you can learn more about her work at ericaginsberg.com. She's also active on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And all of this is in the show notes, so you don't need to write this down but you're going to want to go to all the links in the show notes. Welcome, Erica. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's definitely my honor and pleasure to have such a creator and person who helps others be creators. So tell us, Creative Resilience, your upcoming book, what prompted you to write that book? I think in many ways... <laughs> It's the book I was born to write. I'm sure that you feel very similarly about your book. Um, just, you know, and I have a lot of admiration for what you're doing. And uh, I, as you heard from my bio, have this sort of dual background. Um, I uh, have a dual background in international affairs and in uh, film and video, um, ran an arts organization for many years. And just through my own journey and seeing the journeys of many others who, you know, whether they're consider themselves full-time artists or have a side hustle or are trying to transition to it or are just doing it as a pastime, um, you know, the creative process is part of everything we do, whether we're an artist or not. And so I really wanted to kind of dive deeper into that uh, and and really look at how we can sort of reframe language um, around the creative process because it's a lot of ups and downs. And I think especially when you're an artist, a lot of times uh, your art becomes part of your identity and that's a good thing, but it can also be a challenge because then any obstacles you face become not just an obstacle for making the art, but just a general life obstacle. And so I really wanted to kind of get more into what that means and ways we can navigate that. I don't like to use the word overcome um, because I don't think we'll ever overcome the challenges of the creative process, but just understanding them and, and being able to deal with them in a, in a more productive way. Wow, I just got chills. That is a reframe that is very useful to me because I found myself at the end of the year doing a fair amount of catastrophizing and I would rather reframe it once again, which I was able to do at 50 and somehow at age 60 
life events challenged me and I need some reframes. So it is a gift to be able to talk to you today about navigating the creative process. Tell us more about what you think um, would be helpful to listeners to consider the creative processes and the blocks there that one encounters, not to be challenges, but rather opportunities to navigate. Yeah. And I think that, uh, you know, I mean, the old saying, what does not kill us makes us stronger, I think really does apply. Yes. Um, and so I think that when we're, you know, thinking about creative process, creative life, it's important to go back to what are our key motivations? Why are we creating or why are we bringing creativity into our work? whether it's an art project uh, you know, or something else. Um, and that's really what grounds you so that when you are facing challenges, going back to thinking about your motivations is really important. Uh, one of the things I write about in the book, I also try to sort of reframe language that we tend to think of as negative. And so one of the things I talk about in the context of motivation is that spite can actually be a tremendous motivating force. Um, and we think of that as a very negative thing, <laughs> but I actually think it can be useful. You know, sometimes when you hear voices from other people or uh, yourself even that you can't do something, it makes you want to do it even more. And so that's an example of using spite as a motivating force. It can't necessarily carry you through the entire process, but it can be that little spark that gets you started. Um, and I've had my own experiences with that. I mean, as a you know, nonprofit professional, um, as someone who's making art, you face a lot of rejection. That is just part of what you have to deal with. And, you know, the question is, do you take that rejection and let it sink in so deeply that you can't move forward because you, you know, sort of tend to think of that rejection as the end game? Or do you take it, you're sad for a day or two, and then you kind of come back and, and think, how has that actually helped me move forward? Um, does it make me more resolute in what I want to do? Is the, you know, the form of rejection, you know, for example, maybe you apply for a grant and you don't get the grant, you know, is there a way to get feedback? Is it a form of feedback that you can take or leave, but, you know, but is still there as feedback? So I think the, the key is really how do we sort of bounce back um, when we're dealing with the challenges, you know, whether they are from external sources, such as the example I just said, or even from ourselves when we start to kind of doubt uh, what we're doing or our capacity to do it. Um, that's normal. Um, you know, I always say that when it comes to sort of confidence, it's not that you have it or you don't. It's on a spectrum and it's going to vary. I mean, if you'd talked to me two days ago, I was a mess. <laughs> you know, I, think, I think the turning of the year can be a, a challenge for a lot of folks. Um, oh, certainly and, was for me. Thank you for sharing that vulnerability because I find that honest and refreshing in a place, especially Washington, D.C., where few people show vulnerability in my experience. So thank you for that. That's really important. And I think the people who listen to this podcast appreciate honesty and vulnerability. So thank you for that. I also think that you would be an excellent 
TED or TEDx speaker, and I hope that you will apply because your message is so needed. How many of us have that negative voice in our head, whether it's from our parents in childhood that we can't quite shake or extra other external forces like rejection, like when I lose a case in court, which I really think that I should have won. And luckily for me, it hasn't happened in a long time, but it happens. Life, life is full of of things that may set us back, but you have given all of us via your beautiful book, Creative Resilience, a way to navigate that and keep moving forward with that which feeds our spirit. It's a beautiful thing that you have done. And I um, really, I really encourage all of you to go to her website, ericaginsberg.com read her blog, look at her books, check out her work, her documentary filmmaking. Let's let's go there for a minute. What are your favorite uh, documentary film projects that you've worked on? And what would you, for a first time dabbler in Erica Ginsburg work, which documentary project would you encourage, especially women in midlife to do, to take a look at? Oh my gosh, there's so many. I mean, in terms of my own work, um, the most recent film that I produced in some ways is also a variation on the theme of the book. It's called Creative Feds and it specifically looks- Creative at what? Feds. Feds. F-E-D-S. Interesting. Yes, in terms of federal workers. And, wow. You know, this, is, this is a real DC uh, sort of story. Yes. But one of the things I had worked for the federal government for many years uh, at the State Department. And one of the things that I learned is there's so many people like me who, you know, didn't want to make a choice between having some sort of creative uh, outlet or career and having a government career. And so that's really how the film started. I and a colleague um, who worked at a different federal agency, we were both filmmakers, collaborated on this and sort of sought out federal workers who did different kinds of creative things on the side. We ended up, it's a short film uh, about two workers, one who works at the Library of Congress and the other um, who works for... Uh, a different agency <laughs> that is escaping me at the moment, okay. but um, but they're both musicians and and working musicians, not you know just like oh I make music you know on the side in my you know spare time, but actually as a second career, and so sort of looking at you know how they balance those two careers, but also how they feed each other, and I think that's the thing that a lot of people forget is that having a creative outlet, whether you do it professionally or as a pastime, can really help you in other aspects of your work. I mean, I'm sure you you feel that as well, just in terms of your legal work and then doing the writing and the podcast, um, you know, that, that the creativity that you bring into these projects ends up helping you in your legal work as well. And that was true for these two characters. It certainly was true for me. And I think it's true for a lot of people. So whether you work for the federal government or you have any other kind of job, um, you know, anywhere, I think that having some sort of creative piece, if it doesn't come as part of that job, to have it on the side is really essential, not just for yourself, but also for your work. I hundred a hundred percent agree with everything you just said. And in fact, 
for those of you who have read my book, 50 After 50, I went to five rehabs and some of them were for alcohol abuse, but two of them were for people who, women who had been uh, sexually abused or assaulted. And we were forced to have creative time. And I resented it at first because I thought to myself as a lawyer and very analytical person, I don't want to spend my time doing make painting or making collages or doing anything like that. That's frivolous. Let's get back to the business of recovery. And I was very wrong. And now I value, I value creativity for all the reasons you just expressed. And I really value people like you who have and use their platform to help other people remember, remember what it's like to finger paint, remember what joy it brought you as a child to use your creativity, whatever your creativity is. And maybe talk a little bit about the people you have helped find, refine, rediscover their own creativity. Yeah. I mean, I, I love that word that you used frivolous, because I think that a lot of us associate that word with the arts, you know, and that's why a lot of people get very discouraged, you know, whether by their families or their teachers or themselves in going into the arts, because yes. I think it's sort of, you know, when we're kids, you know, mom's going to put stuff up on the fridge of all your finger paintings and all your little drawings, but that's sort of seen as something you do as a child. And then you're supposed to kind of grow up and grow out of it and take life seriously and who can make a living in the arts. Um, and I think that that feeds into a lot of uh, challenges, you know, for people who go into the arts in terms of how you are valued in society um, and then how you value yourself. And I think that, you know, one of the things uh, talking about helping people, you know, when I was at Docs in Progress, we did a lot of consultations with emerging documentary filmmakers. And I'll never forget, you know, we'll often, we would review a proposal they're putting in for a grant and their budget. And I would see so many budgets where they had put so much thought into it. You know, they, they were like, oh, we're going to travel here and we're going to need this camera and we're going to need an editor for this. And I need to, you know, hire someone to do makeup for the people I'm interviewing. And then it would get to the line for themselves as the producer or the director or often both, because a lot of times independent filmmakers are, you know, doing it very uh, much on their own. And there would be nothing. There's no, you know, I'm going to save money for the project by not paying myself. And, you know, and I would just look at that and I say, you know, I know the reality. Getting funded is challenging. There is a real, you know, probability that you're going to have to do some work for free. But when you put it on paper and you're sending it to somebody that you're trying to get to support the project, you know, I, as someone on the other end of that, would look at that and say, how is this person going to manage this? You know, how are they going to be able, you know, making a documentary can take years sometimes. Um, and you have to find a way to, you know, pay yourself in some way and to value your contribution to the project because all of these other things wouldn't happen if you weren't there. So I kind of took that as sort of, you know, 
a basis for some things I talk about in the book in terms of value and, you know, and, and that even, you know, thinking again about language, we often use the term passion project, yes! you know, which is sort of this project we have that we're doing that we're really excited about. And, you know, even if we've had a long day at work, we somehow can muster up the energy at the end of the day or on the weekend to devote to our passion projects. And that sounds wonderful on the surface, but the implication of that is that, A, you don't have passion for everything else you're doing in your life, which I would hope you do have at least some passion and can bring that to it. Right. But also that somehow if it's a passion project, that means, well, I'm willing to do this for free. I'm willing to do this no matter what it takes. And, you know, if other people don't support me, it doesn't matter because I'm just going to do it because it's my passion. And so that kind of feeds into it, that it sort of becomes, you know, a way of sometimes devaluing our work um, because there's nothing wrong with being, you know, with loving what you do. Um, but we're not going to be passionate about it all the time. There's a lot of mundane things that go into the process, you know, whether it's fundraising or if you're doing filmmaking, you know, the process of editing can be very, you know, challenging and boring sometimes. Um, you know, if you're, if you are making a living from the arts, you know, just dealing with your taxes, um, that's a real part of it or, paying your bills or making sure that you're up to date and up to speed on whatever the latest, you know, tools of the trade are, you know, that isn't necessarily the part that most people find fun, but it's a real part of what we have to do um, as artists. So I, you know, tend to shy away from using the word passion, even though I think it's something that's so associated with the creative process, because I think the creative process is so much bigger than that. Wow. 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 I just got chills when you were, when you were speaking, because in my heart, I believe every word you just said, but that negative gremlin on my shoulder constantly tells me that I should focus only on my legal work. And I am very good at my legal work. And I use the popular term, my passion projects are what really make my soul sing. And I don't want to, I'm not going to do that anymore because of what you just said. You reframed it for me. Thank you. So what ha What do you do when someone devotes their uh, client or a reader of your book or your blog or the people you work with at Docs in Progress? You, you have your finger in a lot of pots, a lot of really beautiful things that you do with your life. You meet someone who is talented at whatever creative endeavor they choose and then they learn about what you just described, which is fundraising, all the minutiae of getting your what you love out in the world. And they feel discouraged and they want to give up. What do you say? Don't. <laughs> I, mean, I, I think that's the, the main thing, you know, or the other thing you can think about is sometimes you need to take a break. You know, sometimes if it is overwhelming or if you feel that the parts that are not as exciting, you know, are kind of dragging you down, you know, sometimes you just need to change it up. And that might mean taking a break from the art. It might mean in some cases, one thing I do is, you know, when I feel it's getting too routine, I will try to 
do something else, something else that's creative, but isn't necessarily the thing that I am invested in as a creative. So for me, that might be painting. You know, I'm not a painter, but I love painting. And so sometimes if I'm working on a film or, you know, at times when I was working on the book um, and I just needed a break from it, it was great to just be able to do something else where I didn't have a stake in it, mm -hmm. but it still kind of fed those creative juices. Oh, um, I love that. That is really, really valuable advice. I, I do have a huge canvas in my basement and I have forgotten to add anything to it for about a year. I, I think I might actually throw some paint on it today. Thank you. Well, that's I mean, wonderful to hear. Really not just throw paint, actually use a brush and feel, feel it because I too am not a painter, but I enjoy the process. Thank you for that reminder. So you have had professional success in conventional ways. I'm sure your family and friends were very proud of you when you worked at the State Department or and what you're doing right now professionally. And maybe as is the case in many families in the U.S. at least on the East and West Coast in Chicago, maybe there there's a lot of familial pressure because of fear, because of fear that you might not be able to support yourself if you if you take an unconventional route. So what, what was your family's, um, if you care to share, reaction to some of the less traditional paths you have taken in as an adult? Sure. My, my family, I think, is largely supportive. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's partially because they themselves, and I think this is probably true of a lot of families, also had their creative outlets. My father worked for the Census Bureau for, you know, most of his adult career um, as a computer programmer. And, uh, but he did photography on the side and even had exhibits. Uh, but even though he's no longer with us, I still have his photographs and that's wonderful to see. Um, my mom was always very good at writing, um, you know, had been a journalist, um, but also worked in a lot of different professions. And so when I went to college initially, even though I had been in an advanced a visual arts program in high school, I decided not to go that route because in my mind, I just felt I don't, I love that too much. I don't know that it's something that I want to be able to make a living at. Um, mm -hmm. I'd rather do it on the side. And that's what I decided at that time and why I went the route of getting into international relations. Um, but then while I was there, I was always taking writing classes and art classes and sketching and doing all sorts of things. And then I said, well, what if I found a way to combine mm. these interests? And that's why I ended up going to film school. Oh, my gosh. Um, that's while wonderful. I was still working. So it's kind wonderful. Of like you, where you feel like all my hours are taken up with something and it's exhausting. But it was also very rewarding. I think the hardest decision I ever made um, was when I was at the Department of State on a good trajectory with my career. Um, a friend of mine and I had started uh, what would eventually become Docs in Progress. And, you know, just as a work in progress feedback session. So it was something we could easily do on top of our other work. Um, but then we would find people would, you know, get feedback and they say, oh, you know, I don't know if I'm ready to show my full rough version of my film in public, but I'd love to consult with you directly on it. So we kind of had some consulting clients. And then by the time we got to someone saying, hey, 
I'm, you know, I have this completely other career. I don't really have the the money or the time to go to film school, but I really want, I have a story I have to tell and I want to make this film. Can you teach me how to make a film? And I think at that point, we both sort of realized, oh, this is becoming bigger than what we envisioned. And that's when Docs in Progress, you know, transitioned from some little program that we were kind of doing on the side to a nonprofit organization. We found a space and I think we pretty quickly realized to do this, we have to devote more time to it. So um, this was in 2008. So around the time of the worst economic crisis in, you know, in our living memory. You are a brave, brave woman. I, I left the Department of State. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my mother would have killed me if yes. I had done that. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was a big decision. Um, my father was no longer alive at that point. I don't know if he would have been so supportive um, <laughs> of it because you know he was a person who grew up in the depression, so he yes. was a very practical person. Right. Um, my mother, I think, was more uh, accepting of it, and it was a challenge. I mean, I lived on savings for a year, um, then I kind of had to take some other contract work and balance that for a year, and it really wasn't until the third year that we were able to start paying ourselves. Um, and, um, but you know, it was just, uh, I never was bored. I ah. always was learning something new. And I realized that that's actually really important to me that, you know, it doesn't matter whether I'm working in international affairs or if I'm working in the arts or in arts management, I have to feel like I'm always learning something and, and developing something new. And I think that's something a lot of people share so even if you're not a person who's, you know, going to quit your job and and go into this full throttle, you know, there are other ways to make it work. Um, and I think the key is just to feel like you're always, you know, approaching it with this sense of wonder and curiosity. Ah, oh, that is beautiful. Beautiful, Erica. So such an important message. And I thank you for speaking your truth in such a beautiful, accessible way that it's not all or nothing. It's you can still feed your creative spirit is Erica's message in her book, Creative Resilience. You can do it, but it doesn't have to be all or nothing. And there can be failures, but just keep learning, just keep feeding your creativity, because as Erica says, it inures to the benefit of every single thing in your life if you nurture your creativity. And I would like to mention that Erica is going to be doing a book reading at Docs in Progress on January 17th from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. where she will be inscribing her beautiful book and speaking uh, a bit about the book. And I guarantee you will learn something that you haven't learned on this podcast if you attend this reading and talk in Silver Spring, Maryland, which is a suburb of Washington, D.C., go to her website to get more information if you need it, or just show up 630 at Docs in Progress in Silver Spring, which is on 2nd Avenue, right in downtown Silver Spring, a thriving part of the D.C. metropolitan area. And if you're listening, for instance, from Northern Virginia, where I know some of you are, come across the river. Silver Spring is really really thriving. Come come join us on January 17th, 6.30 at Docs in Progress. And I know that there are people listening to this who have in their head that they want to do a documentary film. Well, 
go to Erica's website because she has a wealth of knowledge. She can help you decide even if you really want to take the plunge and do it or not. This is a woman of many talents, but I think all of you should run out and get her book. You can access it from her website. It's also an ebook if you want to listen to it while you're commuting. It's really, really adding to the discourse on creativity and what that means in modern society. So I try to keep this to a half hour because I know busy people have only limited time to listen to podcasts. So Erica, the final question, what do you do to become your best version? I think for me, it's understanding that not every day is going to be wonderful. It's not going to be all rainbows and kittens all the time, Mm -hmm. Um, but that's okay. So I think to be your best version, you really just have to understand yourself, but also understand that, you know, things are not easy. They're not going to come right away, but to keep at it and to keep kind of bouncing back, coming back, um, you know, doing what you do. And, um, and just, you know, I, I really like that you say being your best version, because I think that gives us that spectrum. Again, you're not always going to be at your best, but you know what your best is, and you know what your even better could be. So I think striving for that, but being realistic, and sort of knowing that, you know, we're not going to be our best version 24 seven, 365 days a year. But if we know what our best is and to strive for that, um, that is really the best we can do. That is such a beautiful message that this individual needed to hear today because I have to get on a lot of calls that I don't want to get on today. But I am good at it, and I know that I can do my best for each of those, which, and as you say, that best may differ depending on the subject matter, how spiritually centered I feel, etc. So I thank you, Erica, for taking time out from your busy day to be on this podcast and uplift the listeners And I encourage all of you to look at the website, the beautifully designed website, actually designed by Erica Ginsburg herself, which is her name, ericaginsburg.com. And at that website, you can get links to her events, her blog, which is really well done, her various projects, and you won't be sorry. Go to ericaginsburg.com, do yourself a favor, and get this book, Creative Resilience. Thank you, Erica. Well, thank you so much for for having me, and thank you for what you do. I think this is a real service uh, to the community and service to yourself as well. Thank you.